Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. VGW. Void or prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. And welcome to Fruit Loops episode 97. Thank you so much for listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. What? That's right. There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist. Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com and we use fruitloopspod for all of our social media. The foot notes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for different ways you can support this show or become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today we're talking about Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard Jr., also known as the Kansas City Strangler. He murdered at least 13 girls and women in Kansas City, Missouri between 1977 and 1993. We would like to shout out to folks who have come over to us from My Favorite Murder. Yeah. Yeah, we are really, really honored that they were kind enough to run our promo on their show. And so shout out to our first time listeners. Shout out to all those people who have been rocking with us this whole time um yeah, and shout out to my favorite murder hey that's yeah, right thank yeah, you let me give him a hip-hop air horn <laughs> yes shout outs all around um before we get into our episode we would like to say that this is a podcast about true crime and people of color true crime is difficult to talk about and hear about sometimes and race can be the same both are just a part of the world that we live in and we want this to be a safe space where we can have discussions about all the things it's not something that just people of color should talk about or just white people should talk about we try to um bring it all 
here. Yeah. Um, and we are all learning all the time and hopefully trying to be our best sexy selves. Maybe we say something wrong, um, but at least we're trying by having these discussions. So Yeah. And we welcome our listeners to be a part of the discussion on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at fruitloopspod at gmail.com. Absolutely. Before we get yeah. into it. How you doing? I'm all right. Still keeping super duper busy. Yeah. <laughs> How about you? Yeah. Yeah. Same. Just, um, just all the things I, yep. um, my therapist canceled on me today and oh, I was no. really looking forward to talking. Oh, to somebody. Man. Um, so yeah, I'm just the, the, the burnout continues more yeah. virtual schooling, more oh, work boy. stuff. Um, family stuff, just there's so many it's a lot. Yeah, yeah, there's a lot going on. Plus, let me tell you, I don't know if you've heard about this. Did I tell you this? There is an election coming up. What? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and uh, I, as much Super as I- Super stressful. Yeah, as much as I try to like avoid the news, I can't. So I've been listening, I've been on my roller skates, but I've also been listening to just a lot of music. Just- Oh, that's good. Yeah. Straight music. So that has been really, really fun. So- yeah. Well, we're here. We're Fruit Loops. Get used to it. Now we're going to check on some (laughs) listener letters. Oh, hello, angels. (sighs) Thank you. Yes. So relaxing. It is. What's in the bag, Ben? Oh, we got a message from Amanda on Facebook, and she said, Hey, Wendy and Beth, I'm from Manchester, England. Hey, what's up? Yeah, shout out to Manchester, England. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Just Mm -hmm. wanted to say that I started listening to podcasts in lockdown, and the one and only podcast I'd listen to is yours. Oh, thank you. That's so sweet. (laughs) Yeah, I'm absolutely addicted and think you guys are fantastic. I actually can't believe I've nearly caught up as I've literally just finished the Atlanta Child Murders Part 2. I wanted to say that I feel that you both have the best voices and think you were both born to do this. You sound like intelligent and articulate people. I'm so impressed with the research you do and just wanted to thank you on educating me on so much. I thoroughly enjoy listening to the stories and your abilities to discuss such traumatic experiences with a lighthearted tone is definitely a skill that you both have mastered. Hmm. I love Wendy's hip hop air horn <laughs> and the news is racist phrase and Beth's hello angels. <laughs> Lastly, I just wanted to give Beth a special round of applause on your summary of the views of the Atlantic child murders case. It was spot on and I literally clapped in my living room. <laughs> oh, applause, applause emoji. <laughs> yeah. Keep the podcast coming as you're both amazing. Thanks. No, Oh, thank you, Amanda. Absolutely. That literally made my day when I read that. Yes. Yeah. Amanda, thank you. Yeah. Shout out to you, sis. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. Uh, And this message is from Scott, also on Facebook. And he said, hey, guys, cisgender white guy here. Hello. (laughs) (laughs) Not a serial killer, though. Promise. (laughs) (laughs) I love your style and content. You're an amazing duo and truly enjoy listening to your podcast. Keep doing the damn thing. And just wanted to say thank you, Scott, and hip hop air horns to you. Yes. Thank you. Thank you so much. Much. Yeah. Uh, we got a new patron, uh, Heather S. So this is for you, boo. 
Thank you for being a friend. Travel down the road and back again. Heather's true. You're a pal and a Patreon. <laughs> Have you seen <laughs> do the, the TikTok, but it's okay. That's awesome. Uh, lastly, we are recording this on National Indigenous Peoples Day. Yeah. And we want to say happy Indigenous Peoples Day. Uh, not today, colonizers. And I found <laughs> out that we are in Phoenix are living on, well, we talked about this in a past episode, the um, uh, Hohokam. Right. And the Uodam um, right. tribes land. So just yes. wanted to, if you want to find out wh- where you're, like what land you're inhabiting, you can just go to Google Eshel and look it up. Uh, yeah. Which indigenous land do I reside on? And and you can get all kinds of fun. Cool. So, yes. Uh, so now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hey, listeners, I'm Victoria, the host of Unseen, The Traffic Truth, where you're going to hear true sex trafficking crime stories. Legit, these are stories that you probably never heard of because it's not out there to even be believed. I want to raise some awareness through Voices Unheard, get a chance for survivors to tell their story. I'm immersed in this every day, working with survivors every day, and I have been since the moment that I got away. I'm happy that y'all even doing this and that you guys are even sharing this and giving people the platform to share their stories too. You all don't see it, but it's right under your noses. It's right in front of your eyes if you just really look. You're, you're taking the voices of the unheard and you're letting them be heard in a very safe space. It's just being able to tell my story to that one person who can relate or that one person who believes me. And we're back. And uh, remind us, Beth, who are we talking about again? Today we're talking about Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard Jr., also known as the Kansas City Strangler, active from 1977 to 1993 in Kansas City, Missouri. He had at least 13 victims, but was only convicted of killing six. That's right. So now we're going to get into my favorite part of the story, which is the stats. Uh-oh. So Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard uh, Jr., a.k.a. the Kansas City Strangler, is a black man. He was born on May 24th, 1950 in Kansas City, Missouri. Uh, Gilliard was 5'9", 200 pounds, so he was a husky guy, I guess. Um, He had 13 victims, was convicted of six murders. His victims ranged from age 15 to 36. Nine were white, four were black. They were all fairly small women. Uh, He was active, as Beth said, from 77 to 93. And Gilliard is considered Missouri's most prolific serial killer. Mm. His MO was sexual assault on sex workers slash and or uh, drug users. Um, One victim was a woman with mental illness, um, and she was not known to be a sex worker. All were strangled with an improvised ligature found at the scene either during or after the assault. Their own clothing in several cases was used, an electrical cord in one, a shoestring in another. Um, The victims had cloth or 
towels, paper towels stuffed in their mouths. Many were naked and missing shoes. Some were not. Uh, And he was apprehended on April 18th, 2004. And where is he now? He is serving a life sentence in prison without parole. Uh, And again, we like to uh, speak the victim's names. Rest in power, Queens. Uh, Stacy L. Swafford was 17. Gwendolyn Kazine was 15. Margaret J. Miller was 17. Catherine M. Barry was 34. Naomi Kelly was 23. Debbie Blevins was 32. Ann Barnes, 36. Kelly A. Ford was 20. Paula Beverly Davis was 21, although she was not identified until 2010, then linked, uh, but not officially confirmed as a victim of Gilliards. Angela Mayhew was 19. Sheila Ingold was 36. Carmeline Hibbs was 30. Helga Kruger was 26. And Connie Luther was 29. So now we're going to get into the setting, Beth. Take us there. So the setting's Kansas City, Missouri, and we covered some of Kansas City's history in episode 63 about Terry Blair, but here's a little more. Mm. Until 300 AD, the Hopewell tribe hunted the area around Kansas City. The Mississippi tribe occupied the area between 760 and 1290 AD. Later, the Kansas, Osage, Otos, and Missouri tribes spread throughout the states of Kansas, Missouri, and Nebraska, and depended on the large supply of buffalo and wild game for their sustenance. Most likely the first black person to set foot in what is now Kansas City was a man named York. That's it just York, because he was an enslaved person. Uh, York was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition as William Clark's slave, and they were exploring the Kansas City area in 1804. York was born enslaved. He was the son of Old York and Rose, who were the slaves of John Clark III, William Clark's father. York was William Clark's manservant, and they actually grew up together. And when John Clark died, he willed York to William. How fucked up is that? Very much so. And yeah. Lewis and Clark, I remember learning about them in school. Never talked about York. Never. Um, they did talk about how I think Pocahontas traveled with them. Or no, Sacagawea. Yeah, me. Sacagawea. Sacagawea traveled with them and um, how she was very helpful. Um, but y- this 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 part is missing from the story. Yeah. I would even say a little whitewashed. Yeah, and I went a little bit too far on the York story, but I, I liked it, so... I kept it in there. Yeah, let's yeah. keep it in. And if, okay. if you know, we'll put in timestamps. If it's not your thing, we'll then see you later. Move, move on. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. On uh, from 1804 to 1806, York was a member of the Lewis and Clark expedition, whether he wanted to be or not. Presumably, he was the first African American to travel through the Northern Plains. Lewis and Clark started their expedition in St. Louis on May. 14th, 1804. They camped for three days in June of 1804 in the area of Kansas City. Although at first many of the white men in the expedition were not happy to have him there, York eventually became a valued and trusted member of the team. In addition to providing physical labor, York handled firearms, which he was prohibited to do back in Kentucky, where like all enslaved individuals, he was prohibited from using firearms. Mm. But on the expedition, he regularly shot buffalo, deer, geese, and other fowl to feed the party. He also helped to navigate trails and waterways, and Clark often chose York as one of the men to accompany him on scouting trips. Isn't that interesting how the white men were not happy to have him there? Yeah. Uh, And I'll say as a woman of color in the workforce, um, that uh, is a 
feeling I'm very familiar with. Um, As a black man, he was a source of fascination to the Native American tribes that they encountered. Most had never seen a black man before, and he was often paraded among the Native Americans as an object of curiosity. Uh, York intrigued the Native American tribes so much, they seemingly gave the expedition a pass through the land as well as commencing with trade. When the expedition ended, after experiencing at the time an unprecedented amount of freedom, York had trouble adjusting back to the life of an enslaved person, Mm. uh, understandably. Yes. (laughs) He wanted to return to his wife in Louisville, but Clark opposed this and at various times threatened to sell York or have him beaten and jailed. What a Mm. dick. (laughs) Yeah. Fuck. In May 1809, Clark wrote that York was insolent and sulky. I gave him a severe trouncing the other day, and he has much mended. Does trouncing mean beating? Beating, yeah. He's an asshole. Oh, my God. Yeah. Um, no, just disgusting on so many levels. That yeah. That's how it was. It's okay to treat a human being like this. Um, Somebody but, he grew up with, you know? Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, he didn't um, think much of him other than that right. he was his property. Right. Um, it was, it's not known for certain what became of York, but it is believed that Clark eventually freed him sometime after 1815. And he operated a freight service between Nashville, Tennessee, and Richmond, Kentucky. According to Clark, he died of cholera sometime between 1822 and 1832, a very large window of time to not be clear about when somebody died somewhere in Tennessee. Other people have said that he went to live with a native tribe, which was not uncommon. In 1825, the federal government forced the Kansas and Osage tribes to give up their land along the Missouri River and move to reservations in central Kansas. There are no reservations in Missouri. Wow. Um, Well, uh, America, um, that's kind of messed up that the government did that. And uh, the kind of messed up. What am I talking about? That is very messed up. (laughs) Um, God damn it. Yeah. Yeah. the Wyandotte tribe lived in lands extending along Lake Ontario, but had been steadily pushed west. The tribe eventually platted Wyandotte City, which later became Kansas City, Kansas. Kansas territory opened for settlement in 1854 and once again started the forced removal of Native American tribes. They just couldn't stop. Couldn't stop, no. As fur traders, explorers, and settlers moved into the Kansas City area, Black people came with them. Most were enslaved. White Southerners brought their cultural and economic practices with them when they migrated to Missouri, including slavery, and the region where they settled has been called Little Dixie. Yeah, I was watching a documentary about Kansas. It was really short, and it was all from the perspective of white people. They talked Mm -hmm. about the growth of Kansas City at this time and how, um, you know, uh, all this industry was brought up. Um, But they never once mentioned that uh, who they um, perhaps pushed out, who they displaced and the uh, ugliness of slavery that they were bringing along with them. Um, According to the 1860 census, the state of Missouri's overall enslaved population represented about 10 percent of the population. But in Little Dixie, enslaved populations ranged from 24 to 54 percent. 
Yeah, that's a big chunk. According to historical records before the Civil War, the three major cash crops in the region were hemp, tobacco, and slave breeding. That's disgusting. And slave people were bred to make more slaves. That means they'd pair up enslaved people. And there were some um, plantations or or, um, slave owners who specialized in breeding. Oh, my God. I mean, the way they do livestock, it is horrific and sick. i heard something real sick really interesting is uh I, I was watching some slave show um i gotta stop that for a while i gotta take a break but uh uh <laughs> take a break from the slave show. yeah i gotta take a break from the <laughs> slavery uh but uh, uh they were talking about how if america today really learned and understood the horrors of enslavement american chattel slavery and jim crow they couldn't handle it. Yeah. So, yeah. thought that was interesting. Yeah, it is interesting. So, um, back to... <laughs> Sorry, <laughs> like, yeah, it. No, no, I'm just like, man, that's a bummer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Whew, gotta catch my You're bearings. Okay. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> <laughs> Activists snuck slaves across the border into anti-slavery Kansas. In the late 1850s, many black people came through seeking freedom via the Underground Railroad. Little Dixie became an early battleground between slaveholders and abolitionists. And I think this is where um, I'll shout this out later, but I'm watching the good Lord bird about John Brown. And this is like, this is when that show is taking place oh wow and bloody kansas feels like an understatement uh (laughs) or the border war was a series of violent civil confrontations in kansas territory between 1854 and 1861 which emerged from the debate over the legality of slavery in the proposed state of kansas it is seen as a prelude to the Civil War. Following the abolition of slavery in 1865, Black communities were founded along the east and west sides of Kansas City. Many came to the area lured by the prospect of jobs with the railroads, stockyards, and packing houses that sprouted along the west side. And from 1910 to 1930, the Black population nearly doubled, growing from 25,000 to almost 50,000. Cities throughout the North and Midwest experienced similar population booms as millions of African Americans fled the Deep South during the Great Migration. As the Black population grew, so did its entrepreneurial presence in other parts of the city. The 18th and Vine area became a major focus and business hub for the community. The area, later known for its nightclubs and jazz, was home to significant Black-owned businesses, including the Kansas City Call newspaper, which published its first edition in 1919. Ooh, that's exciting. Yeah. Uh, While many were able to escape the ways of the Jim Crow South, discrimination and segregation were attributes still very prevalent in Kansas City. I think people think, oh, they they left the South and then had all this opportunity in the North and everything was fine. It wasn't. Uh, many violent threats and other external forces pushed black people to live exclusively in a single area. There were many bomb threats made as well. At one point, there was even a proposal made to tear down more than 50 homes that belonged to black people just Mm. in order to make a park. 
which was actually just a disguise for creating further distance between the black and white communities. Mm. As a result of these acts of discrimination and segregation, black people developed a very strong sense of racial pride within their community. Yeah, I mean, they just had no choice but to be resilient and love themselves and survive, right? right? Um, Black people built their own civic organizations, businesses and institutions such as the NAACP, the Young Negro GOP Club, the Homer Roberts car dealership and the Kansas City Monarchs. And the and uh, the that was the Negro League baseball team from which a young shortstop named Jackie Robinson would emerge mid-century. Yeah. Yeah. Very cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Troost Avenue is mentioned throughout the Gilliard story as many of his victims hung around there, worked there, and were found there when they were killed. Mm-hmm. There may be no city in America that has a more stark physical and symbolic division than Troost Avenue, one of the longest streets running north to south in Kansas City. Troost Avenue was once a boundary between rich and poor, black and white, but thanks to the efforts of activists and city leaders, that line is blurring somewhat. Somewhat. Uh, Somewhat. Neighborhoods, yeah. Neighborhoods east of Troost are black. Neighborhoods west of Troost are white. Downtown Kansas is west of Troost. Uh, the, the one block east of Troost means an annual average household income that is $20,000 less than a household wow. one block west of Troost. That's fucked up. Uh, yes, it is. According to University of Missouri, Kansas City professor Brent Never, there are zip codes east of Troost, Never says, where average life expectancy is 15 years Ooh, less wow. than zip codes west of truce Jeez. so that's pretty a pretty stark that's difference stark. yeah yeah kansas city residents have 20th century real estate developer jc nichols to blame he helped introduce racial segregation into the city's neighborhoods having developed about 50 blocks worth of residential homes with covenants that forbade black or jewish residents from ever buying them oh, that's fucked up too that <laughs> Is this is a so fucked up story. Fucked up. Yeah, but it's, I mean, it's entirely by design, right? So yes. all these activists give me hope when I hear them say these are by design, these were designed, these are systems that were built up, and that means systems can be torn down torn and down, started yeah. all over Dismantled, again. Dismantled, yes. Yeah. Um, while the covenants are unenforceable today, their impact remains. Nichols, by design, created racially homogenous communities now vividly expressed by the truce divide. According to the 2000 census, one third of the population of Kansas City was black. And currently there are more than 98 Native American tribes in the Kansas City area. So now we're going to get into Lorenzo Gilliard's early life. Lorenzo Jerome Gilliard Jr. was born on May 24th, 1950. I believe that makes him a Gemini in Kansas City, Missouri. I believe that also makes him a great migration baby. Um, He was born, but we don't know for sure. It's just my guess. Guess, Uh, He was born first of three children and had one younger brother and one younger sister, Daryl and Patricia. He only completed the 10th grade and never graduated from high school. He went to Manuel Career Tech High School. It was one of the first high schools in Kansas City to desegregate after Brown v. Board of Brown v. 
Board of Education. But due to white flight, it was mostly black by the time Gilliard went there. And it was in a rough neighborhood. We don't know much about his early life, but he had a troubling background. His father, Lorenzo Gilliard Sr., was convicted of rape in 1970. His brother, Daryl, was convicted of a drug-related murder in 1989 and sentenced to life without parole. And his sister, Patricia, was a sex worker who stabbed a customer to death in 1983. She was also later implicated in the killing of another sex worker. And she was convicted of the murder of the customer in 1983 and served a 10 year sentence. So, uh even though we don't know the details, we can uh I guess guess, yeah. guess a couple of things. Uh yeah. Over his lifetime, Lorenzo regularly assaulted friends, relatives, and strangers. Even as a teenager, yeah. He was an equal opportunity assaulter. I guess so. You get an assault, and you get an assault, and you get an Everybody gets an assault. Uh, even as a teenager, young Lorenzo was bullying and beating women, including the first of his four wives, Oh, it was four wives. I thought it was three. Uh, Rena, whom he married in November of 1968 at age 17 when she got pregnant. His ex-wife, Rena Hill, said that he was very nice when she met him and they met in high school and attended dances together. She described him as fun, but that all changed after they got married. And mm. Gil- then Gilliard subjected her to five years of torture before she escaped. Wow. The physical and mental abuse was almost continuous. Quote, he beat me and he raped me. He threatened me and he said he'd kill me. He also liked having nice things, but she was never allowed to use them. He kept her confined to one room, the bedroom, for five years. Rena ended up divorcing him in 1973. You go, Rena. Yeah, but um, right. She was she they got married because she was pregnant. So presumably right. there's kids there's involved. children. Yeah, um, that is just. Um, Awful. Yeah. Uh, in 1986, Gilliard began working for Deffenbaugh Disposal Service, starting out as a trash crew and working his way up to supervising several crews. He be moving on up, <laughs> moving uh, on up. <laughs> to the to supervisor, the <laughs> to the uh, great supervisor in the sky. In the sky. <laughs> moving on up. <laughs> Um, Lorenzo was described as reliable, friendly, hardworking, and quick to make a joke. Gilliard maintained a stable job and lived in a nice middle-class neighborhood. Interestingly, he is said to have fathered 11 children by his, uh, is it three or four, is it four? four? I thought it was, okay, by his four wives and some girlfriends. Yeah, I think uh, it's confusing because they n- they never mentioned wife number two. Oh, yeah, okay. but she she's in there somewhere. Just don't know where. <laughs> okay, okay, <laughs> all right. I'm not going to judge. Um, well, actually, yeah, I am. When I get to my takeaways, uh, so now we're going to get into the timeline. Hit it, Beth. Between 1969 and 1974, Gilliard was suspected of five rapes. 
but he was never convicted. In several cases, the accusers were reluctant to testify against him. And mm-hmm. in 1975, Gilliard was brought up on charges of raping a 13-year-old girl, the oh. daughter of a friend. Oh, fucked uh, up. No friend of mine, sir. Yeah. Um, a psychiatrist examined Gilliard as part of a competency test. The doctor noted that Gilliard insisted that he not the girl he raped was Uh, the victim okay uh, sir you are garbage he was sentenced to nine months for molestation in a plea deal nine months that's it um that's fucked up now this was the 60s (laughs) i'm gonna keep saying that yeah this this story is all kinds of fucked up uh i i we don't know the name of that girl but um I just feel that's terrible. Yeah. Yeah. In April of 1977, Stacy Swafford, 17, was murdered and dumped in a rubble strewn lot. Stacy left home a few months earlier and was living on the streets as a sex worker. Her family last saw her around Easter. So uh, welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. I think now is a good time to talk about sex work. Many of Gilliard's victims were sex workers. Many sex workers are men, women, femmes, and non-binaries who choose to do the work, enjoy it, and maintain a sense of agency and dominion over themselves within the work. Many engaged in sex work do so out of necessity or survival. I think the first thing that pops to my mind is that like a trans young person who may have been kicked out of their home and can't find employment elsewhere. Yeah. Um, Many involved in sex work, men, women and children are trafficked and have no choice and no agency. And it can have it can certainly be a high risk occupation. Sure. Um, We don't know what exactly the cases were for each and every one of Gilliard's individual victims, but felt it was important to mention because sex workers are vulnerable, technically soft targets for serial killers. Yeah. Um, And there you go. Yeah. In 1979, Gilliard was charged with raping a woman while holding a gun on her boyfriend. Despite compelling evidence, a jury acquitted him. I don't even understand. Yeah. Uh, I need to know more. Unfortunately, we, we don't. don't. Yeah. But um, that seems wild. There's two witnesses, two victims. Yeah. Um, what was the jury made up of? You know, uh, it just so many questions because mm-hmm. that's wild. In January of 1980, Gwen Kazine at 15, the youngest victim, was murdered and left in an alley with the wire wrapped around her neck and wrist. She was clothed but without shoes. The murder of Kazine got some attention because she was so young. Her father reported her missing the day before. She had a brother. Uh, She went to church. She had a lot of friends. She liked hanging out with her friends and playing pool and dancing. And relatives said that she was a happy-go-lucky kid who took up with a bad crowd and then turned to drugs. And I think um, that her father reported that she was missing the day before, but she actually might have been missing for for a week. I think it was. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In 1980, Gilliard was convicted of assaulting his third wife, who divorced him. He then stalked and beat her twice in 1981 while the case was still under appeal. That's wild. This guy. In May of 1982, Margaret Miller, 17, was murdered. On May 9th, her body was found in a field near 37th Street and Garfield Avenue by a teenage student walking to his grandmother's house. Not much is known about Margaret. She was a lifelong area resident. She hadn't been living at home for a while, and she sometimes worked as a sex worker. 
A week after Margaret Miller was murdered, Lorenzo Gilliard went to prison on felony conviction for the assault of his ex-wife, as well as a parole violation related to a jewelry theft. Um, and I, th- I thought that there were other instances of burglary in his early criminal history, um, but there may well have been. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, he served time from May 1982, just after Margaret Miller was killed, until January 1986. And the serial killing ceased for nearly four years. Then two months after his release, the eight murder spree began. Gilliard became a garbage collector by trade after his release from prison in 1986. His boss at Deffenbaugh Disposal Service said that Gilliard was punctual, personal and reliable, and he'd been promoted to a supervisory job. Hmm. Well, um, he's unsuspecting, I guess. Um, yeah, I'm- he is. I mean, um, when you see him talk, he's pretty uh, soft-spoken, and mm-hmm. um, yeah, he's he's not really somebody you would suspect of being a serial killer. They all are. They all are. It's always the quiet uh, ones, right? It's always the quiet ones. Uh, on March 14th, 1986, the body of Catherine Barry was found under scrap plywood in a derelict building a few miles from downtown. She had been struck on the head and strangled with black pantyhose. Barry, she was 34 years old, was the only victim who was not a sex worker, and her body was the only one that had been hidden. Interesting. Yeah, all the other bodies were left out in the open, um, presumably so that they would be found and Mm -hmm. shocking to whoever found them. But Barry was hidden. Don't know why. Very interesting. Yeah, Yeah. but she she wasn't a sex worker. So maybe maybe that's why. I don't know. Mm, More shame. Yeah, because maybe he didn't feel bad about killing sex workers, but he did feel bad about killing Catherine. I don't know. Mm, we don't know. We're just, just speculating. Guessing. Catherine was a mother of three who'd had a mental breakdown after the birth of her third child, and then she turned to a life on the streets. She spent some nights in a homeless shelter, and other nights she just walked the streets. Barry was the oldest of 10 children. That's a lot of children. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and one of, one of her surviving sisters believed that she was on her way to Mass, uh, which she went to every day when she met Gilliard. One of her sisters described going to identify Catherine's body and seeing the rosary beads around her sister's neck. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. We are gathered here today to give you permission to plan the wedding that you want. I'm Jessica Bishop. And I'm Sari Wienerman. And we're the hosts of the Bouquet Toss podcast. Today's couples have to juggle so many things, from family expectations to outdated traditions and what's currently trending. So to make it easier, we're going deep to figure out why we do weddings the way that we do, so you can decide what to keep and what to toss from your wedding day plans. You are cordially invited to subscribe to The Bouquet Toss wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcast.com. By the power vested in us, we pronounce you free to plan your day your way.
Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomena slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com That's a tough sight. Yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, a, a mental breakdown after um, one gives birth. That postpartum depression is real. No joke. And this was yeah. in 1986. And, um, you know, just wish there was more assistance available for yeah. Um, women in that position at the time. Um, the body of Naomi Kelly, 23, found on August 16th, 1986. Kelly was a single mother who was found strangled in a needle park downtown with a towel tied around her neck and face. Her sisters described her as a private person who kept to herself and her family didn't approve of her lifestyle. Uh, she was taking business courses, but did sex work on Troost Avenue. Debbie Blevins, 32, was found on November 27th, which was Thanksgiving Day. That's sad. Mm, yeah. The body of Blevins, naked except for socks, had been dumped outside a church not far from the trendy Westport neighborhood. Debbie was close to her sisters, but unfortunately had turned to drugs. She left behind a nine-year-old daughter. Oh, man. Um I was going to say doing drugs, but uh, I feel like it's not appropriate. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, man. Yeah, this is a tough one. Yeah. Um, on April 17th, 1987, the body of Ann Barnes, 36, was found. It was both Good Friday and the 10-year anniversary of the murder of Stacy Swafford, the first victim. And also weird. Worked- yeah. Yeah. Um, and also worked as a housekeeper at a hospital. Police said she was a sex worker, although I don't know if that is 100% true. And she may have had a daughter. Seven weeks later, Kellyanne Ford, 20, was found strangled in a city park. She was found by a woman walking her dog. At the time of her death, her father lived in Texas and her mom and brother lived in Warrensburg, Michigan, where Anne was born and raised. On September 12th, the body of Angela Mayhew, 19, turned up in North Kansas City. Police found no evidence of sexual assault. She was found clothed with her hands tied, but she wasn't wearing any shoes. She was wearing a turquoise sweater and investigators retrieved hairs from that sweater. Police said she was a sex worker. Again, don't know if that's 100% true. Next was Sheila Ingold, 36, found dead in a van on Troost Avenue, a popular trolling ground for Johns. She was found nude and semen was found on her body. Sheila was a beautiful girl who grew up in Arkansas. She had three sons but divorced her children's father. She was on methadone to help her kick a heroin addiction, but she often traded her methadone for crack. Carmeline Hibbs, 30 years old, was found murdered on December 19th in a parking lot on Broadway, about 16 blocks from where Sheila's body had been found. Uh, She had a daughter who lived in Las Vegas with Hibbs's mother, and she was a lifelong Kansas City resident and member of a local Catholic church. Carmeline was also found not wearing any shoes and on a cold December night. Police said that she was a sex worker. What do you think about all these shoes missing? That's a good question. I 
I don't know. Souvenirs? Yeah. 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 Something like That's that. The only thing I can think he of. He likes yeah. shoes. He <laughs> likes shoes. Yeah. Um, yeah. It is interesting because uh, not everybody had shoes missing, right? Um, I think most of them did, but not all yeah. of them. Yeah. 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 Gilliard was scrutinized in the serial killings because he was known to spend time with sex workers and sex workers had told cops that they were afraid of him. He had agreed to give a blood sample in 1987 and cops tailed him at the time, but came up with nothing. At the time, the technology to link him to the killings did not exist. Mm. The pace of the serial killings then slowed down. The body of Helga Kruger, 26, an Austrian national, was found on Troost Avenue, February 12, 1989. She had been convicted of soliciting at one time. Her body was found with a paper towel in her mouth, ligature marks, and bruising and abrasions. Yet another sexual assault charge against Gilliard in 1989, this one involving a neighbor, led to a suspended sentence and probation, jeez, under a plea bargain. This guy is real slippery when it comes to the justice system. he is. The victim and Gilliard had eaten dinner together and shared a bottle of wine on Halloween Eve. And then he made sexual advances, which she declined. He reacted with violence. In the middle of the ordeal, the victim said, Gilliard held a knife to his own throat and threatened suicide unless she complied with his sexual demands. That's sexy. That is not how it's done, fellas. Uh, Under the plea deal in the case, Gilliard was required to undergo sex and anger counseling. But no jail time? No. Well, no, I guess... a suspended sentence and a, and probation. Yeah. Oh boy. Yeah. Four years later, Connie Luther, the presumed final victim, was found dead in January 1993, lying on a snowdrift. Connie was one of five siblings raised by a single mother who did the best she could. Their mother died the year before Connie was found murdered. That's sad. Yeah. Connie had gone to junior high school, but she never made it to high school. And she was said to have been a sex worker. She had a son who she loved, but she did not raise. She was a good person who got caught up and was in the wrong place at the wrong time. She had been strangled with a shoelace. And then the killing stopped. No one knows why, since Gilliard has never admitted that he ever started. And Mm. after two solid decades as a familiar face in Kansas City courtrooms, you know, for assaults and uh, burglaries and whatnot, he -hmm. seemed to go straight in 1989. I wonder what it was about 1989. Hmm. Hmm. Gilliard married his fourth wife, Jackie, in 1991, and the couple lived in a small house on a dead-end street in South Kansas City. Neighbors told reporters that he rarely spent time outside, and his interactions with others on the block were uh, curt or surly. By 2004, Gilliard must have been confident that he'd gotten away with murder. The Mm. investigation into the serial killings had been ice for years, with forensic evidence sealed and stored. But his past finally caught up with him. It always does. Mm -hmm. According to the episode about Gilliard on the docuseries Serial Killer by Piers Morgan... Oh boy. Gilliard's <laughs> life on the outside seemed pretty perfect. He was happily married to his wife, Jackie, and had worked his way up the ranks at his sanitation company. Gilliard had five Mercedes, one of Whoa. which was a rare model that cost over six figures. Holy shit. Yeah. 
He also had expensive watches like Rolexes and Piaget's, and his co-workers wow. described him as popular and respected, always eager to help, happy to help, never complained, did his job, and did it with a smile. Wow, he really had everybody fooled. Yeah. Um, now we are going to get into the investigation and arrest. So in 2003, Kansas City Police won a federal grant to pay lab technicians overtime to run DNA tests on stored evidence from violent cold cases. Police had evidence stored in some 600 unsolved rapes and murder, and detectives narrowed that down to 85 cases that showed promise. One of them was the murder of Naomi Kelly, the sex worker murdered in 1986. So now we're 2003, Mm -hmm. better late than never. Over 13 months, beginning in February 2003, scientists spent 2,500 hours of overtime on nights and weekends doing DNA testing. The DNA they had in the case was from semen, saliva, and hair left at the crime scenes. The work paid off when DNA from the same man was matched in evidence from each of the eight murders from 1986 and 87, along with the five others from 1977, 1980, 1982, 1989, and 1993. Woo, that is a win. Shout yeah. out to my girl, DNA. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man, she comes through every time. Uh, on April 12th, 2004, a name matched to the DNA. It was Lorenzo Gilliard, linked to the crimes by DNA extracted from hair or semen found on the victims. Police began following Gilliard again 17 years later while prosecutors prepared a case. And after a five-day tale, detectives arrested him as he ate dinner at Denny's. Ooh, so now we're going to get into the trial. Hit it, Beth. Gilliard agreed to a bench trial instead of a jury trial, and in return, the prosecution dropped the death penalty. They also dropped six other murder cases, but left the door open for future action on them. Gilliard also surrendered most of his rights to appeal a guilty verdict. Okay. In the fall of 2006, Judge John O'Malley threw out a lot of the evidence against Gilliard due to what he called sloppy work by the Kansas City Police, both in 1987 and after his arrest in 2004. But prosecutors still had the DNA evidence, and that was the focus of Gilliard's trial in the spring of 2007, which lasted one week. Yeah, just a week. That's pretty short. Yeah, not long for a murder trial. Yeah, serial killer. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. <laughs> the seven murders Gilliard was prosecuted for were those of Ann Barnes, Catherine Berry, Kelly Ford, Carmeline Hibbs, Sheila Ingold, Naomi Kelly, and Angela Mayhew. DNA linked Gilliard to six of the seven women, and a hair provided the evidence in the murder of Angela Mayhew. I was just going to say, trials last a long time because you have to get all this testimony from witnesses and people involved. Right. But if you got the DNA, this you're just, just like... DNA, yeah. DNA, here's yep. somebody to testify about it who's an expert. Case yep. closed. I can see why it lasted <laughs> only a week. Yeah, yeah that uh, makes sense. Gilliard showed no emotion in court. His defense attorney argued that Gilliard, who admitted to being a frequent customer of sex workers, could have been a foil for a murderer who came along after he had sex with these women. <laughs> that is a new one for me, that folks. That is the most and ridiculous boy, oh boy. story I've ever heard. <laughs> yeah, with a straight face. Yeah, yeah come on. Okay. Come on, man. <laughs> Happy birthday, Cardi B. 
<laughs> but Gilliard was judged guilty in the six cases with DNA evidence and acquitted in the Mayhew murder. During his sentencing on April 13th, 2007, when the judge asked Gilliard if he had anything to say, Gilliard said, no matter what I say, it doesn't matter. Okay. Hmm. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, all right. Uh, that, I have no words for that. The judge then told Gilliard that he had forfeited any right to live out here among the rest of us and yeah. sentenced him to life without parole. Joe Lamb, who covered the trial for the Kansas City Star, wrote that Gilliard's lip quivered as he listened to Judge O'Malley, his only reaction during the entire trial. Hmm. A few relatives of his victims spoke to the press outside of the courthouse. One called the conviction, quote, a gift I thought we would never receive. In addition to the 13 known victims, authorities are also determining a link between Gilliard and Paula Beverly Davis, 21, who disappeared in 1987. Ooh, fingers crossed that uh, they can do that. Um, where are they now? Well, I'll tell you. Gilliard is housed at the crossroads. See you at the crossroads or you won't be lonely. <laughs> See you at the crossroads or you won't be lonely. Does that song ring any bells? Mm -mm. Any okay, well, I guess it's just me. Just you. Uh, and all the black people listening. Uh, <laughs> Crossroads Correctional Center in Cameron, Missouri. Uh, he's complained of beating and harassment in prison. You could miss me with any sentiment for you, Mr. Gilliard. Uh, in 2018, an episode of a show called Serial Killer aired in which English broadcaster... Okay. Piers Morgan interviewed him. Over the course of his interview with Morgan, Gilliard threatens to leave whenever asked questions he doesn't like or when Morgan said things he didn't agree with. When Morgan describes him as a serial killer, Gilliard almost leaves, saying it's cruel for him to be referred to in this wow. way. Wow. <laughs> you know what? That, that is interesting because uh, I don't know if you remember we talked about Sam Little and uh -huh. how pissed Sam was uh, Sam Little is the most prolific serial killer in U.S. history. He has right. uh, upwards of 90 victims or more. At least, um, yeah. But, yeah, but that Texas Ranger was like, he kept calling him a rapist. And it was like, that was the word that bothered him. But him once the he most, started talking yeah. about how he was a murderer, yeah. he like perked he up and right. got excited. Yeah. yeah, so maybe Piers just wasn't using the right language when he was yeah. talking to um, uh, Mr. Gilliard. And I will say that Piers Morgan, if you ask me, um, I think is not the best journalist no. um, or he's, reporter. He's kind of a dickbag. Or human being. Yeah, yeah. You, you took the words out of my mouth. Um, but uh, so anyway, uh, during the interview, Gilliard again maintained his innocence and claimed that the police framed him and planted the DNA they took from his blood and hair samples. Uh, he denied ever having met the women, let alone having any physical contact with them. In fact, he claims that he had never paid a woman for sex before expounding on his belief that any sexual relationship is a form of prostitution. Man, this guy is just <laughs> dropping gems. And by gems, I mean big lumps of dookie every time he opens his mouth. I would like a like a like serious interview with him. Um, yeah, with a good wasn't... interviewer. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. 
When asked how he feels about the murders, he replied, quote, I feel bad, but there ain't nothing I could do about it. I'm sorry what happened to them. That's all I can say. I didn't do it, but I'm sorry. Okay. Um, Morgan asked why his semen was found on the victims if he is innocent. Gilliard at first seemed not to understand how DNA works, then claimed that the police had never taken samples from him, although, of course, they had. And Gilliard ended up walking out of the interview. I saw that interview. Um, And again, I think... um, I think there were opportunities there for somebody to um, not penetrate him, but penetrate sounds really bad for a rapist, but um, to, to, <laughs> to, to get um, him to open up a little bit him, more. To get him yeah. To open up. Yeah. Um, side note, can't watch Piers Morgan. Can't stand the man. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that's just my opinion. Uh, <laughs> so now we're going to get into what made him snap and our takeaways. Um, I know you shouldn't judge everyone by their family of origin, but it's really all we have to go off of in this case. Mm-hmm. I mean, his father was convicted of rape. His sister was a sex worker involved in violent crimes, which led me to believe that his early life at the very least was wildly unstable. Yeah. Uh, his first wife who um, he tortured, beat, and raped for five years is also telling. Uh, she seemed, uh, or she said that he seemed nice at first. His employers all said that he was a nice guy. So by all accounts, maybe he seemed nice. He seemed to be nice, right? Um, he clearly had control issues. He preyed on vulnerable women and discarded them like garbage. Yeah. Um, he is an awful human being, Um I am having a hard time thinking of, uh, you know how we say sometimes, ah, oh, it's an ex- it's it's an explanation. It's not an excuse. I mean, right. this guy just seems like the worst. The worst. Of the worst. Yeah. Um, I he, have he no- has no explanation and no excuse because he denies ever doing it, even though no. it's pretty obvious that he did. So very obvious, and I wonder why he doesn't. Um, he claims he's innocent. Um that a serial killer was following him and after he had sex with these <laughs> women that the guy killed them but he yeah. clearly doesn't understand dna and i don't know if that's because of his age like he doesn't get the technology thinks it's all uh mumbo jumbo <laughs> yeah, yeah mumbo jumbo or gobbledygook uh i also think that there are 13 victims that we know of but i wouldn't be surprised if he was responsible for more yeah so. yeah yeah, I agree. And uh, we, we don't have a lot to go on, but it would probably be fair to say that his early life probably sucked. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we don't know anything about his mother. I couldn't find anything about his mother. Yeah. But his father was a rapist, so he probably didn't teach Gilliard much in the way of respect for women. Am I right? Yeah. And during the interview with Piers Morgan, your favorite person, (laughs) he was he was obviously lying. He said he'd never paid a woman for sex, yet he was known to the sex workers on truce as a frequent customer. And part of his defense was that a serial killer was following him around and killing the women after he had sex with them. So obvious lying. Just try to imagine how that would even be true. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) That would be the weirdest serial killer ever. Yeah. I don't know. You're the OG of true crime. Are there any out there like like that? that? Okay. Not that I know of. (laughs) So, yeah, he was obviously lying and he was very calm in his lying. And uh, he's another one that's really good at lying. Like Mm -hmm. his lies don't make any sense. 
but he mm-hmm. tells them in a very believable way. So yeah, it's weird. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's mm-hmm. also weird how he just stopped killing and it's annoying to me that he won't talk about it. I mean, I know he's going to be in jail for the rest of his life. Just spill the beans. man. Might as well. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Might as well. I would like to know what made him stop. Um, other serial yeah. killers have stopped like BTK mm-hmm. and the golden state killer. They both stopped killing too. Right. And uh, I read that some people theorize that serial killers will age out as they get older and their testosterone levels get lower. Um, Ooh, yeah. Interesting. My name is Bill Huffman and I am a former Cleveland news producer and I am now the host of the podcast who killed. I began the show focusing on the unsolved murder of Amy Mahalovic, and now each week I explore a different case with a focus on some of the victims who don't get the attention they deserve. I have a deep catalog of over 225 episodes, so there is a guarantee there will be something for you. Who Killed is an Evergreen Podcasts, Killer Podcasts, and Slow Burn Media production. Subscribe today wherever you get your favorite shows. Hey, podcast listeners, I'm Paul Brandis introducing my podcast, Countdown to Dallas. It's a fascinating, in-depth look at the seemingly unconnected events that led to the assassination of President John F. Kennedy. It's based on my book of the same title. In that book and in this podcast, I go all the way back to 1939, when Lee Harvey Oswald was born into a troubled and dysfunctional family. I'll follow his transient and often violent teenage years and young adulthood, painting a fuller picture of the man who would later become Kennedy's killer. I also take a look at events unfolding in that era, like Cuba and Vietnam, And I'll unpack the conspiracy theories, too, not one of which has ever been conclusively proven. Subscribe to Countdown to Dallas at evergreenpodcasts.com or your favorite listening app, October 31st. I think in BTK's case, he had a wife and family that he wanted to keep. And I think his wife was getting upset with some of his behavior. Mm -hmm. And so he made a conscious decision to to quit killing, Mm -hmm. which is crazy. Um, He found other outlets um, Mm -hmm. so that he wouldn't kill. Um, Okay, okay. Who knows, maybe Gilliard was similar. Um, Because, you know, he got married and it seemed like the fourth wife was the charm. He... uh, He apparently had a good life, uh, you know, his wife and a nice house and a lot of material goods, which seemed really important to him. Um, Five Mercedes? Yeah. Okay. I, wow, man, life must have been good. Yeah. So I, I, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know either, but this is one I had never heard of before, and yeah. uh, it was an interesting one to research. It was. And uh, thank you, Fruit Loops Pod Squad. Yeah, uh, for bringing that to our attention. Yeah. Mm-hmm. going to get into how not to get murdered so if you love true crime and you don't want to die here's a tip for you 
<laughs> yeah. <laughs> this segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Hit me. All right. So this is some uh, safety tips for sex workers and probably for other people as well, but specifically for sex workers. Mm. So always trust your instinct. If you feel uncertain about someone, then there is a good reason for it. So, mm. uh, you know, if you don't like a client, don't take that client. Amen. Always tell someone when you're going out to work and when you are expected to be back. Carry a personal alarm or a whistle and don't be afraid to use it. Keep it handy somewhere you can get to it quickly. The bottom of your handbag is not handy. (laughs) (laughs) I like that one. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Carry a cell phone. You can program it to dial a number at the press of one button. Make this the number of the police or one of your friends so you can get help quickly. Alcohol and drugs can affect your awareness and your ability to recognize and act on your instinct. You are much more at risk if you are under the influence of drink or drug, so just keep that in mind. Mm -hmm. If your client offers you a drink, ask for an unopened can or bottle or serve yourself. Avoid accepting drugs from or taking drugs with your clients. You can never be sure what they are. Appearances can be deceptive. Don't assume someone is okay just because they looked respectable. When talking to a client, keep a confident look on your face and be assertive, strong, and in control. Mm. Be friendly but firm when negotiating services with a client and explain your limits. Tell other workers about potentially difficult or aggressive or violent clients. And finally, if you are attacked, seriously consider reporting incidents to the police. Mm, Yes, but we've said this before, too. There are advocates that you can contact before you contact the police who will help you through navigating the reporting process. Because sometimes police departments don't always take this stuff seriously. Yeah, so Um, we'll put some links in the show notes. Yeah. Fantastic. So now we're going to get into the shout out portion of our show where we shout out any content by, uh, well, basically any true crime goodies or any content by or about any othered or marginalized groups. Um, So I wanted to shout out the Good Lord Bird on Showtime. Have you heard of it? I have now. (laughs) It is so good. Uh, It's on Showtime. It's about the famous abolitionist John Brown. It's based on a book of the same title told from the perspective of Henry, who is a little, uh, a newly freed teenager. Um, he's a black teenager who joins John Brown on a holy crusade to end slavery. It's really exciting. Wow. The Good Lord Bird is equal parts absurd and tragic as it spotlights the ever-changing racial, religious, and gender roles that make up the American identity. Uh, wanted to note that, uh, all abolitionists, uh, we think all abolitionists are great. They all wanted to end slavery, which they did, uh-huh. but they also did not believe in equality for black and white people. But John Brown did. Wow. Um, and that's what's really interesting about, uh, I think, one of the things that's really interesting about him. So check it out. Good yeah, that sounds really good. Mm-hmm. So I wanted to shout out a podcast I stumbled on over the weekend called Verified. Oh, 
Yeah. Um, I, I haven't listened to the whole thing yet, but I've listened to a lot of it over the weekend while I was doing chores. So okay. that's, that's what I do when I, uh, I clean and stuff. I listen to podcasts. Yeah. That's how you get it. Well, <laughs> I mean, that's how you make it enjoyable, right? That's yeah. how you make it through. Yep. Um, exactly. Tell me more about this. Well, I'll read you the description. Okay. A policeman turned sexual predator and a group of fearless women from around the world band together to bring him to justice. This is not a story about victims. This is a story about women who fight back. Yo, is it a true story or is it yeah. a um, No, it's a true story. Yeah. Shut up. Yeah. This sounds amazing. Color me subscribed. The policeman is in Italy. Okay. And um, so people, from, he, I don't know if you want me to tell yeah, you tell about, me all about it. Yeah, tell me about it. I'm excited. So there's a service called couch surfing. I don't know if you've ever heard of it. No. It's kind of like, um, what's the one with the houses? Uh, Airbnb. Oh, okay. It's sort of like that, except for um, it's people who um, have a couch you can sleep on. So you can sign up to go sleep on somebody's couch somewhere. Oh, okay. And so this guy, he had a, a profile on couch surfing and okay. he would he would have women stay at his house and while they were there he would drug them and assault <gasps> them. Yeah. No. Oh my yep. god. Wow. So, people from all over the world. Yeah. Really? Oh, this sounds good. Okay, so, thank you, yeah. Beth. You're welcome. <laughs> well, that's it for today, folks. Beth, where can the people find us until next time? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, and our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod, and links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash App. Just Google Fruit Loops Pod Cash App, or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. All of that is true. And this is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, y'all. It's crazy out there. slots you can get lucky just about anywhere dearly beloved we are gathered here today to has anyone seen the bride and groom sorry sorry we're here we were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time no lucky land casino with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry in that case i pronounce you lucky play for free at luckylandslots.com daily bonuses are waiting no purchase necessary void were prohibited by law 18 plus terms and conditions apply see website for details Something is creeping in. Don't follow it down. Let me introduce.
introduce you to Barry Clue, an authorised financial advisor from New Zealand and a very special kind of stain on humanity. He was a very uh, knowledgeable young guy. He was a registered financial advisor. The type of guy that was bending over backwards to help you. Now you could be forgiven for thinking that Barry sounds like a great guy. And you'd be right. Well, right up until the point when you're wrong. It was all fictitious. You stole from my son who has a disability. Chris never knew. He died believing that we're all taken care of. A psychopath is somebody who lacks empathy, acts impulsively. I think there's a strong case that Barry might be all of those things, actually. To find out how Barry Clue stole over $15 million from 81 victims, subscribe to Clueless, the long con. That's Clueless, spelt K-L-O-O-G-H-L-E-S-S.